0: new, here's what I want you to hear right now, um, we have an agenda, so we're, 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 we're kind of operating in an agenda right now, and here's what it is, we are working really hard to try to convince you, seriously, convince you that by middle schoolers, y'all have fun in your class, you'll be in there a while, okay, just so you know, you'll be in there a while, uh, uh, if you don't know our middle school ministry, they sing with us, worship with us, and then they go and uh, learn the um, same material with a, a better teacher, so, um, but anyway. So our agenda this week, right now, and every week, is we really do want to convince you that you um, that life is better together. In fact, God says very clearly that it's not good for men and women to be alone. Uh, that's just part of the deal, that uh, life is better in community, and we wholeheartedly believe you should be a part of this community. Um, and there's some really simple steps for that, particularly what I would offer you is... Love for you to be uh, brave enough to show back up here on a Wednesday night. Show up at 5.30. We'll have food prepared for you. If you have gluten allergies or you're a vegetarian or you like meat and potatoes, whatever your liking is, we'll have good food prepared for you and love for you to come eat with us that's at 5:30, and then at 6:15, uh, we have all sorts of fun stuff we have uh, that in this room we do celebrate recovery that's for any of us dealing with any kind of hurts habits hang-ups really neat to find some community there um, we have uh, classes for children and classes for high school and middle school students all those things and starting this wednesday night for two weeks i'm going to be teaching up in the upstairs auditorium on prayer so if you're confused by prayer join the club uh, it's this complicated of go, okay, why do we pray if God knows everything? And how, how am I supposed to pray? And so for two weeks, um, we're going to be upstairs in the auditorium. It would love, 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 love for you to come hang out with us, uh, hang out with me up there as we work through that. I think it'll be worth your time for sure. And there's a reason for that, uh, and the main reason that we're kind of teaching on prayer right this second is we're prepared, preparing for a pretty busy fall. Uh, If you don't know, we're starting an additional service on Saturday night. So we'll have three worship services like this one, one on Saturday night, two on Sundays. And we believe wholeheartedly that we cannot manufacture a move of God. And if we were to manufacture, it wouldn't be from God. It would just be us. And that seems like a a silly way to spend our time and energy just trying to uh, coerce and manipulate and create our own stuff. And so wholeheartedly we believe it's actually God's work. And it's our witness. And so for those of us who walk and believe that Jesus is Lord, and we've seen the um, the ramifications of prayer, and uh, for those of us who are not quite sure, what a great opportunity to watch God do something, not because we're smart or clever or have all the right answers, but because God is good, and he always, hear me, always is bending and shaping all things for our good and his glory. And when we pray, something different happens than would not happen if uh, we didn't pray. In fact, when we pray, every single time, God either answers that prayer the way that you pray it or the way you would pray it if you could see and know all things God sees and knows. So I would invite you to come be a part of that on Wednesday. Now, um, the way that we teach around here uh, on Sundays is we basically open up the Bible, read from it, and talk about it. And we kind of go through a good section of uh, Scripture. We call it a series over multiple weeks. And so um, the last couple months we were... Um, looking at this series called Genesis, really, really clever name. In the beginning is what that word means, and literally is just the first book of the Bible. And I um, enjoyed that so much, personally I did, uh, getting to teach it, that we decided to keep on trekking through, and so we moved right on to the next book of the Bible, which is Exodus. So we've been in a series that started last week on Exodus. And here's kind of what you need to know if you haven't been here. Um... Exodus is a part of what's called the Pentateuch, okay? That's the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's called the Pentateuch, and the whole plan always. The, the writer, who's kind of one of the, 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 the leaders in the story, Moses, the writer, always intended for those five books to kind of be seen and read and understood together. One of the things that we discussed last week is this. This trouble that we get into, the church, individuals, couples, this thing called proof texting. It's where you grab something out of the scriptures to prove your point, right? Just one little verse, and when you read that one verse or a few verses, it goes, ah, that's kind of strange, right? And so if you're not a Christian, you've heard it over and over again, or people have talked about this crazy God who does weird things, and they'll pluck out one verse of scripture and kind of point out that. And so one of the things that we're trying to you know, guard and be careful with is kind of seeing the whole picture of who God is, and what he's doing through the whole book of Exodus, and then the Pentateuch. And so, uh, if I were to define Exodus, I would say it's the same story as the Pentateuch. And if I were to define those first five books, I'd say it's the same story of the Old Testament. If I were to define the Old Testament, I'd say it's the same story of the New Testament. And so, if you don't know much about the Bible, the really neat thing is there's only one story in the whole Bible. And so, what we refer to that as is is called the meta-narrative. I got got, uh, markers that work, don't worry. Um, So... Meta story is what we'll call it today. And all meta means is about. So it's a story about the story. So the really neat thing about what we're going to look at today is it's a horrific story. Okay, I just want to be very very clear. In this story, um, God kills a bunch of Egyptian children. In fact, it's the story of the Passover. And if you're familiar with the Passover, every year, all uh, Jews from all over the world get together and they share this meal and they declare that God uh, rescued them out of bondage and slavery, and he does it through a really crazy way. And so what's interesting is on one hand, there's a group of people who go, God is so good, he saved us. But in order for that salvation to happen, the way by which God orchestrated it, literally, you can read it in scriptures we're going to today, God is going to wipe out the firstborn family members of all the Egyptians. And so it seems really weird to talk about how good God is. Yay, God rescues us. And then on the other hand, go, there are people that died. Horrific, tragic deaths. And as Christians, we got to reconcile that. And this would be a really good passage to proof text and go, see, that's your God. He kills babies, not a God that I want to sing to or worship. And if you just pull out those those few verses it makes perfect sense that you would we would come to that conclusion. So I'd say just stay with me today as we work through this and so the story, the Passover story is actually the story about the story of the whole meta narrative and so what's really neat if you look at the whole Bible, you look at Exodus or you look at this very specific passage in Exodus chapter 12, all of it is just telling one story and here's how the story goes. Some of you may be familiar with this. The first part is creation. There was nothing and then there was something. Um, all of us have to come to some conclusion that this is real because you exist. Even if you're going, no, everybody else is just a figment of my imagination. I'm the only one in the room. You still exist, right? So somehow, some way, something came to be, right? And so we just call that. The creation, there was nothing. There was something. The argument would be that an intelligent designer, creator, put all that into play and would spend a lot of time talking to you about that. Don't have time. But what you're going to see in the, the nuances of this this incredible story, and then the story in Exodus 12, it's pretty neat to see, wow, there might actually be an author who's writing all this. So the very first part would be creation, and the Bible tells us that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and a little bit later on Genesis 2, Genesis chapter 3, you know, a couple, a couple of chapters into the Bible, it said that God walked in the garden in the cool of the night. So a couple of really interesting things, that God created all things, all things, and then at the pinnacle, or the apex, to the climax of his creation, he created men and women. And he said, in his image, Imago Dei, so God, at the pinnacle of all things, creates human beings, and then he dwells with them. So in the very beginning, it's God, perfect creation, all is well, and it says that God was with Adam and Eve in the garden, on the cool of the night. Really, really important to see that, and so that's creation. So this was, there is a world, it was wired perfectly, and it was everything you could ever imagine. And then I would say, and this world that we live in isn't that world. Because there's second part of the story, and it's the fall. As Christians, we refer to that as sin. It's this idea that we look at God and go, we understand you have a plan, but we like our plan better. That's all It that sin is. is missing the mark and going, nope, God, this, we understand what you want to do, but we trust ourselves. We are more interested in what we have to do. And so sin literally is just going, we like our plan better. And in the in the Bible, we see this in Genesis, that God gives them some parameters, and they say, we're not really interested in your parameters. We'll do whatever we want to. And in this moment, really, really crazy story. Again, it'd be really easy to proof text and go, that doesn't make any sense. But they eat from this fruit, and the Bible says that all of a sudden their eyes were open. They were already open, but now they're more aware of things. And they realized they were naked and felt shame, and so they hid, right? And so the problem is, as we walk away from God and go, no, no, we'll orchestrate our own world uh, What ends up happening is there's this big chasm between the world that was created and the world that we now live in. The one that was supposed to be of God and the one that we're in. And let me just offer this to you. Don't believe all that. Have you ever thought about why you cry? Here's what I'd argue. Every single time you shed a tear of sadness, it's because of this. Right? It's all because of this. Somebody dies. And you are deeply in pain because your mind is saying there's something wrong with this story. And I would tell you, yep, that's why. You know why? Because there is something wrong with this story. That wasn't the way it was originally intended. So all that sadness you feel when you read the news and feel this disgust, do you know why you feel those things? It's because of this story. It's because everything was created and wired perfectly and then something just goes cataclysmically wrong, right? And so that's the story. Now here's what I would offer here about fall is This comes with deep pain and sorrow and consequences. The kind that you see all over our world. The things that keep you up at night. So in all this story, the big meta-narrative, you see that God created all things. And then human beings go, we like our plan better than yours. You can see it to the nth degree in any way you look right now, right? And then all of a sudden there's this deep sorrow and this deep pain. And every time you shed a tear, it's you acknowledging that there is something off here. And so that'd be a really, really terrible story if that was the end of the story, right? If that was just all the story was, it's just, yep, there's this, and now there's this. Oh, well, suck it up, bleak, hopeless, dark, right? That'd be a really terrible story. But that's not the story of the Bible. That's not the story of Exodus, and that's not our story. That's not the story about the story, because the story then goes to redemption. And this is a really great part of the story. That word literally just means to buy back, meaning as a result of this, as a result of this fallenness, there is a Deep cost to pay. There is some way you buy back what was originally yours, there is a deep cost to it, right? You, some of you have this experience. You get a new car, then you wreck it, and then you've got to pay the money just to get the car back to the way that it was. Right? It just, just stinks, right? And so this story is there's a deep cost to get it back to the way it was supposed to be deep cost. Now, what's interesting, when we look at these things throughout the Scriptures, God actually gives us some descriptors to understand what, um, the, the weight of the fall and the cost of redemption. So, God actually tells us in Numbers, part of the Pentateuch, that as a result, hear this, it's crazy, as a result of our fallenness, as a result of that there is a heavy, heavy price on our head. And you know what he says it is? He actually tells all the Israelites that the firstborn belonged to him. Firstborn of humans, firstborn of animals, because in the firstborn, it showed all the hope and all the possibility that could be that new baby, right? When you got a new child, all the hope and the possibility of how this is going to change everything, right? Right? So in the first, uh, you know, livestock, all the hope of this big, massive farm that you could one day have. So God literally says, hey, as a result of your brokenness, you want to feel the weight. There's shame and pain, but there is actually a bounty on your head that will one day, I will call in the debt. You want to know what the bounty is? Firstborn. And the other reason it's firstborn is because we have to understand that the, that the reality is when we respond to God, we go, God, you are greater than all things. And then God goes, okay, let's define what would be your most prized possession, It's not your car, right? It's not your house. It's your child. It's your, you know, livelihood, your offspring and your livestock. And so God goes, when you see the cost of all this, what I want you to understand, the cost is actually, that the great cost is a value of the thing that you value most, firstborn. And so throughout the scriptures, you see this statement about the firstborn. Now, the other thing that we see with redemption is when we see how it's bought back every single time there is a purchase made for someone in the scriptures. it's just so messed up. Every single time. It always comes at the price of something innocent. Something that didn't do any wrong. For example, in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve, they eat the fruit. They realize they were naked, so they hid. And so God comes and, you know, he, he rebukes them. He corrects them. He tells them the weight of all this stuff, the disconnection, the weight of all the stuff, all that things, And then he says, hey, uh, and then uh, he tells them that one day through their offspring there is going to be redemption. But in the middle of that moment, God knows they're naked. He knows fig leaves aren't good enough. So you know what he does? He slaughters an animal. First sacrifice in all the scriptures, it starts as a result of Adam and Eve being naked. And it said that he slaughtered an animal. I would argue it's a lamb. Okay, You'll see why in a little while. To make leather. To cover them up. So even in the beginning, this, as a result of this fall, there's always a price to pay. And typically and always in the scriptures, the price is paid by someone innocent. Now, that's not the end of the story. So God says, hey, I will buy you back. I will bring you back. And then you go, well, why does he do that? Well, he tells Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, he blesses so that will be a blessing. And so God, in his graciousness, not only buys us back, he then puts us back into participating in the restoration of this world. This is told you last week, really, really inefficient way for God to do it. And yet God, like us as parents who let our kids help us with whatever task, even though it's not helpful because you want to hang out with them, you want them to feel connected and purpose, right? So God actually invites us into the story of making this world everything it should be. And a 100 or so of you yesterday, so proud of you, for those of you that went on over to Lincoln University and helped us move in 500 students, carrying a bunch of stuff up three, four flights of stairs. And I would argue... As that was happening, what we were seeing is a better picture of the way that the world was supposed to be. People serving sacrificially, caring for people, talking to their neighbor, even the one that doesn't look like them, talk like them, or have the same experiences. And you're starting to see that picture. So God invites us into all those things. So as a result of the story, you see it all over the place. It's the creation. Everything was created. It fell. God redeemed and then restored. So when you see that throughout the whole Bible, you see that one day, God tells us in Genesis, that he's going to redeem his people. You know, what's interesting is as all this is happening, there's this interesting thing that shows up throughout the scriptures about um, a lamb, okay? The first time you actually see the word lamb mentioned in the Bible, it's uh, when God and uh, Abram are talking, and Abraham, and this is after Abraham has been called to a new plan, chose his own path, God has brought him back, and you know, Abram has had his son. God said he's going to bless him, going to multiply the nations, and this little guy named Isaac. And then in this moment, God speaks to Abraham and goes, hey, remember, there's a real cost. There's a bounty on your head. There's a bounty on all people, and so it's time I'm cashing in the, the debt. That's what he literally says to Abraham, and he says, um, I want you to sacrifice your firstborn. Now, this is horrific, horrific, and in our individualistic society, it's even more horrific to even imagine this, and but. Abraham would have known. Abraham would have understood, right? If God would have said, hey, I want you to murder your wife, he would have gone, wait, wait, wait I'm confused. You can't tell me that. That's not part of it. But when he says, hey, I want you to offer your son... Abraham is not excited about it, but he understands there's a bounty. There is a, a debt to be paid. And so uh, Abraham grabs Isaac. You know the story. They go up onto the mountain as they're going and preparing. Abraham is literally, it tells us in Hebrews, thinks he's going to kill a son and does believe that God's going to resurrect him. But in these moments, you can imagine just the confusion of going, okay, I understand I've got to pay this because God can call in the debt at any point. I understand that. I understand that God is just being just. But he's probably having a hard time reconciling. But I thought, God, you were all loving and all gracious. How in the world does this reconcile? Yep, I I deserve this. I should pay it. But my son's going to die. How does that make you good? And so the only conclusion Abraham can have in that moment is maybe he's going to die and then God's going to resurrect him. Really, really crazy thought. And I couldn't imagine the experience. But as he's going up, as he's getting ready, Isaac, who's probably a teenage boy, asks Abraham, hey, dad, where's the lamb? You know, because we understand we've got to make sacrifices. We understand it's a band-aid. It's us showing that innocent blood had to be shed as a result of the brokenness. Hey, Dad, where's the lamb? And Abraham over and over again says, God will provide. Then the moment where Abraham is about to slaughter Isaac, an angel of the Lord stops it and goes, no, 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 don't do that. Don't do that. And over in the, the bushes is this, this ram. That's a sheep, right? This ram who's stuck in the, 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 the briars and the thistles. And it says by his... His horns, meaning there still wasn't a blemish on his body. He is perfect, and he is innocent. And in that moment, we see that God provides this lamb. And you go, that is so weird and so nuanced. Yep, it is. And it's going to get even weirder throughout the rest of the, the morning. So that's the story, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Um, if you're new here, I just would say, you, you're familiar with this story. It's every romantic comedy. Boy and girl meet. They, somebody's lying, and you're going, tell them the truth. They don't tell the truth, and then they get separated, right? And then somehow, through some kind of repentance, some kind of, penance, some kind of sacrifice where someone decides to forgive, they get brought back together and it's cute. And then they get happy and everybody's happy. And then, you know, the scene goes black and then it comes up and it usually says, you know, I don't know, about nine months later, maybe a couple years later, and then you see the new scene where they're um, at the birthday party, and they got a baby, right? It's just the story of, yep, created, fall, redeemed, restoration. You see it in every superhero movie. You can stop seeing them. Things are good. Oh, no, bad villain get bad. Oh, no, what are we going to do? Maybe someone with greater powers, greater strength, and come in and save the day. Wait, he's not showing up early, but he never shows up late, right? And he comes in, and he saves the day. And then Metropolis is all back to great again, right? It's just the story of all the stories. You know the story because this is just the story of our heart. And I would argue it's because this is the original story that God created. And you see it in Exodus. So what we find ourselves is the stories of the Israelites have uh, come into Egypt and life was good for them. And over the course of about 400 years, things got really bad. So it goes from good to bad. They now find themselves enslaved. And there's a couple things going on. There's this Pharaoh who hates them. Why? Because he loves power and control. And he's seeing these this uprising of Israelites. And he goes, If I don't handle this, if I don't take over this, then they're gonna they're gonna revolt against us. So uh, the Pharaoh does something really interesting. He cashes it on his own bounty, firstborn, right? Of all males, and then so all these males, not just the firstborn, but any boy that's born to these families, he literally has thrown in the Nile to die. Why? Because he doesn 't want them to grow, and so you see when this this desire for power and control kind of runs rampant in you. What you see is depression oppression of people. You see it throughout the world, right? On the other side, God decides that the way he's going to restore the Israelites to bring them into restoration is going to use this mouthpiece, this dude named Moses, who's going to go speak truth to power, right? He's going to use this guy. He stutters. He has a speech impediment, and he has all sorts of messy broken things, right? The first time we find Moses, he's a baby, and then he becomes part of the Pharaoh's regime through some really supernatural experience. So he's an Israelite who gets adopted into the Egyptian, you know, royalty. And so, we see him really get really angry in this moment where these Egyptian folks are oppressing Israelites, and in that deep-seated anger, he literally murders them, right? On one side, you see people who, out of, out of fear of losing power and control, and I'd go, look far right, far left in our politics if you want to. That's where those people exist. Well, all the power, all the control, that's what they want, and they will do whatever they must. Lie, steal, cheat, to keep that power, right? Now on the other side, you can look far left or far right, whichever way you want to look, and you will see people so deeply seated in anger. Some of them at real injustices, right? Deeply seated in anger that they are just screaming at anybody who will listen. Don't tell me what to do with my body. Don't tell me what to do with my, don't tell me what to do. I am in control. Like this anger and this vitriol. So if you stand in any place and look at our country and look at the world, you see people filled with this wrathful sin. As one side a result of fear, the other side a result of anger, and the world is just broken. And for these Israelites, they find themselves enslaved, and God says, I want you to go to my people. And there's some arguments, and he's like, I can't speak. And he's like, fine, I'll send your brother with you. So Moses and his brother Aaron, they're going, and they have this plan. And God says, I want you to tell the Israelites what I'm going to do. Hey, they're in this fallen world. I'm going to redeem them and I'm going to give them a picture of what's to come. And so in Exodus chapter 6, that's where we're going to start. Um, Moses is uh, being told by God what he should say to the Israelites. And I just want you to see the picture of restoration in front of us. Exodus 6, verse 6, it says there this Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord and I will bring you out. From under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will redeem you, right? I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you, see that word, with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham. So we've been studying this idea of providence, which means, our covenant, which means God is always going to keep his word. Remember, I told Abraham I was going to give you a new land for your possession. Hey, Moses, I still the deal. I'm still going to bend and shape all things for your good and for my glory. So I will give that uh, that with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession, for I am the Lord. I am the boss. I'm the one in charge. So we see this picture of God saying, hey, Moses, you're about to participate in some real radical restoration and redemption, so prepare yourselves. So know what's about to happen, and maybe you're familiar with the story. It's horrific. you get this really angry, arrogant, narcissistic king who thinks people should worship him, thinks that he is perfect in every way and that he's the greatest, and he has no interest in, in following God in any way. And so God continues to send Moses back to this horrific king to say, you need to let my people go. You need to free him. And every time Moses says no, just literally sticks his middle finger up at God and goes, nope, not, not interested at all in that, and continues to do his own thing, his own thing, right, over and over and over again, this, this Pharaoh, right? And so Moses is going to keep coming back in the, in the plagues that he keeps creating for punishment get worse and worse. So there's these 10 plagues that are going to happen that are eventually finally going to bring about the redemption of the Israelites. And if you're not familiar with the story, I got a real quick video just to catch you up on all the Passover stuff. And at the end, it's going to give you a little foreshadowing about what we're going to talk about to so prepare yourself. 3 minutes. This is God's story, the Passover. So, really cute children's story, right? Yeah, lots of plagues. God sends, like, you know, all sorts of horrific things to punish a group of people, and they still tell God no, and then finally he just murders their kids. Yay! Then they get to go to heaven, right? I mean, it's a good story. Once you to understand the story. But remember, if you're just plucking out something, it would make a lot of sense that this seems like makes God look a little crazy, right? So what we're going to do, we're gonna, I'm going to walk through some of those objections. I, I think if you stay with me, it'll be worth your time. Um, but before we do, I want to read to you the passage of what God instructs. And if you want to, and do, while I read this, be as skeptical as you want to. Think about the things that just don't make sense in this. That's okay. God can handle your skepticism, right? So we're going to read it, and then I'm going to discuss it. But I am going to read it so you know I'm not making it up. This is Exodus chapter 12, beginning in verse 21. Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. So he's preparing them and saying, hey, an angel of death is going to come. There's going to be horrific debt to be paid. I am, God is cashing in on all of his, you know, his collected debt that he's going after, right? And the only covering is going to be this lamb, so prepare yourself with this lamb. And so he gives them an idea, go get this Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it into into the blood in the basin and put some of the blood on the top and on both sides of the doorframe, okay? You can be a skeptic. This is weird. Go kill an animal and then, you know, graffiti your house with the blood, right? Oh, that's a God I want to worship. Um, none of you, now watch this, both sides of the doorframe, none of you shall go out the door of your house until morning. When the Lord goes to the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the tops and sides of the doorframe and will pass over that doorway, and he will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. Okay, so there's going to be this debt that's going to be collected, and the debt is um, death. And you go, that sounds horrible. And I go, yep, it is. We'll talk about it. But I just would offer this to all of us. Death was looming that night, and it still is. So it was a little bit more kind of condensed, and oh, in the next 12 hours something crazy is about to happen. But the reality is the result of all our fall, every single day for all of us, death looms, right? It just looms. You lose someone, you get bad news about you know your you know your your body or your health and it's just looming and so it's just just looming here but one of the interesting things that happens is as Moses is given this direction he's going okay look you're going to be covered you're going to slaughter this inno- innocent lamb without blemish go find the perfect one you're going to slaughter and you're going to put the blood and it's going to cover your house until so your house is covered but he says something really interesting he goes but don't leave your house Meaning, this isn't what's going to fix all things. This is merely a band-aid to a much bigger, you know, um, predicament. So, what, what what's happening here is he's going, "Hey, this is a temporary visa. You can stay in the land a little bit longer. You get a, you get a temporary visa here, but this isn't this isn't your permanent solution." So he's going, "Don't leave the house right now. Stay in the house because if you walk outside the house, you will be slaughtered too." In other words, God's covering this temporary band-aid, this sacrifice is just for tonight and just for this moment. So he tells them this, and then here's what it says next. Verse 24. Now obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you, as he promised, remember, there's going to be restoration. When that happens, that he promised, observe this ceremony, meaning I want you to continue to have this meal over and over again after all this is happening. So he's given instructions going, this is going to be good for you. And you're going to be saved. And year after year, I want you to remember this moment, right? Uh, so, and when your children ask you, what does the ceremony mean to you? Then tell them, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord. Sacrifice. There's a cost. It was a lamb. It was innocent. Uh, sacrifice to the Lord um, uh, who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Then the people bowed down and worshiped. The Israelites did just what the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. So they're going, okay, we're going to obey this. So here they are obeying it, and they surrendered. They repented. They go, okay, God, whatever you want here, in verse 29. Um, Such an important verse, but such a horrific one as well. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on the throne, to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon, and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. This is horrific, guys. Don't believe me. Watch their response. Pharaoh and his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night, and there was a loud wailing in Egypt. For there was not a house without someone dead. This is a terrible story. And there's a lot we've got to figure out. Like, God literally slaughters these people. So, I want to just walk through some objections in this, and maybe, maybe they'll help um, Slots I think one is why does God kill here? you got to figure that one out, particularly these some of these are babies, some of these are infants, right, so why in the world would God do that like it, doesn't that make God mean? got to work through that so that'll be the first thing. second one that we 'll work through is really who is why does God get to determine whether or not there's some kind of moral code like really we can't truth just be uh, subjective to what I think it is? Is there really a, a moral law that I have to follow like in the and then the third one is really, and if there's a moral law i have to follow, is there really that kind of punishment for death? And if that's the case, it, if God is all loving, like people say is, why doesn't God just absolve all the debt, just wipe it clean without anything? I mean, if he's God, couldn't he do those things? So We got to work through, okay, first of all, it starts with death. Why in the world would God do that? Second one is, okay, um, is there really some kind of moral law we got to follow? And then the third one is, if God is loving, couldn't he just wipe it out? And so, the first one actually is the one that, um, in fact, I asked Gary this this morning because I thought it would be fun to ask him. Hey, Gary, you're our pastor of discipleship. Um, all those children who died um, in the Passover, are they all in hell? Right? I mean, that, that, we get it. We get it we got to come up to some conclusions here. If we believe there's an eternal heaven, and eternal hell, that God covers those with his blood, his sacrifice, we'll talk about that in a little while, and therefore we get redeemed, bought back, and invited, not into just restoring this earth, but being in the restoration process for all eternity, that we get to enjoy God's restored world the way that it was meant to be for all eternity, for those of us who are covered, right? And so the big idea of today is God always fights for his children, okay? So God is redeeming. So for all these Israelites, for all these people that are going to be Christians, right? All these people, God is redeeming and inviting them into heaven. But these kids who get slaughtered, are they just cast into hell? Like, oh, well, wrong family. Shouldn't have been an Egyptian, right? So, I mean, we. You no, know, here's the second piece, and really important. So the big idea is God is always fighting for his children. And here is what the second part is. and He wants you to be his child. And the only thing that's standing in the way of you being his child is the only thing that was standing in Pharaoh's way of being protected. His arrogance and pride to think that he can do it better on his own. Right? And so God is always fighting for his children, and he is always adopting new children, and he would love to adopt you today. Right? Now, that's just the picture of who God is. And, but first, you're going to go, well, I don't know if I really want to be in God's regime if this is what he does to kids. Okay? A couple things to point out. Two of these are trite, so just... I'll brush over them pretty fast. The first one is, these, these folks weren't innocent. It's like, oh, can't do that to these innocent people. These folks weren't innocent. They participated in genocide towards Israelites. They literally watched babies flail in the Nile River. So these, these weren't innocent folks. There's 10 different times that they, could have, they could have walked out of that. And, by the way, the option for this Passover lamb was available to them as well. So if you read uh, Exodus 12, 19, it actually talks about how they prepare for the foreigners. And then when you see, as we'll see next week, as they're fleeing, it says that they were ex-Egyptians, or Egyptians, with the Israelites fleeing. So this redemption was available to all people, right? It was unlimited. That atonement was available to all people they wanted to obey it, right? So you got that piece. But you're going, well, some of these kids are not old enough to make those decisions. Hmm. Lean into that thought again. But wait, wait, so the kids that were old enough to make these decisions, they decided they would choose their own path because they liked it better. And there are consequences for that. But wait, some of those, they can't even come to those conclusions. They can't think through all that. Yeah, which I would argue makes God extremely gracious. Because we can see a couple different passages, and don't want to highlight them all, but David, uh, uh, King David, later in the Scriptures, he, in, in the story, he, he has a child that he loses in infancy, right? And you know what he says to God in that, you know, brokenness and sadness and grief, right? The pain of this isn't the way it's supposed to be. He says, I can't wait to be with that child again. That's his belief, that he is going to be reconciled with this chi- child, right? So there's different terms, age of accountability, all these different things. But the, uh, what we can do, not just make ourselves feel better, but we can see someone who can't call on the name of the Lord, someone who isn't covered just because they ask Jesus into their heart, or whatever the vernacular you're familiar with in terms of becoming a Christian. These little kiddos that like, can't do that. David says, I can't wait to be with you again. And then in uh, Romans, it actually confirms David's thought about that, that that is going to be the case. So we have this understanding about who God is, based on biblical theology, right, that these little ones, who can't make decisions on their own, who can't literally turn their back on God, because they don't, aren't capable of making those things, right, those decisions. That, uh, uh, in, in that way, we see that Perhaps, perhaps. Perhaps what we really see here is that God is being extra gracious and extra merciful. He can play the tape through and go, this isn't going to go well. But in this moment, in this moment, these kiddos could have been protected. So you get that piece. Now the other side is, um, you got to remember God sees and knows all things. Sees and knows all things. This is the only way I can reconcile the story of Noah. It's the same kind of premise. How in the world could God wipe out all people? That's babies too, right? But God, in his infinite wisdom, he doesn't see birth-death timeline like we do. He exists outside of time. God can peer into the future. He can see all things. He can know all things. And he can play the tape all the way through for an entire generation and go, nothing gets better. This world just gets worse. It's just going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth forever. And then God, in his mercy, puts them out of their misery right? You can understand that if you've had to put down an animal, whether it's a horse or a dog, an animal that you love dearly, and the pain and the sorrow of putting them out of their misery wasn't an act of wrath or vengeance. It was an act of compassion, right? Because you can know for that animal that there is no more good available. There is nothing but pain and sorrow. So you, as a gracious caretaker and provider for that pet, made the hard decision to go, I'll go ahead and just wipe this I will take them out of their misery. And so you see these different pictures that God can pr- see all things and go, yep, this is not going to end well for any of these folks. And you can see that perhaps in the middle of this, God is saying, hey, I'm going to be gracious to you and remove you from the judgment that's going to come to your fathers, right? And your arrogance and your rebellion. And so i also point out another trite one, but it's less than what the Egyptians were doing to the Israelites. They're killing all their boys all of them. So just horrific in this broken, messy world. And so God's way of getting attention, the attention of Pharaohs to go, you've got to understand there is wages for this sin. There is a cost. There's a consequence. And that cost is death. got it? Death. So that'd be the first one. Okay. Second one is really some moral code. Do I really got to follow somebody else's rules? Okay. It's fair. How about this? How about— Think about, maybe make a note of it. This would be really good for you. Make a note of all the times you have expectations of someone. To be on time, to... Have whatever it is ready, whenever it is you want it ready to say the right things, do the right things, behave a certain way, don't do certain things. You know, all those all those rules you have for your spouse, your kids, just all those rules, okay? Nobody else's rules, just your rules. Let's not talk about anybody else's rules, not God's rules. Let's just talk about the, your expectations. So if you were to write all those down, all of them, maybe they're 50, maybe it's 5,000, I don't know, all those expectations, and then you were to get to the end of your life with your expectations, no, not God's, just your own moral code, and... How would you like, to, with your expectations, to be measured on your goodness and badness and the consequences of, of your life as a result of just the rules that you have for yourself? Not other people. You know not, you know, not God's rules, but these rules that you expect other people to do. The reality is we all have these rules. We all do. So the idea is there is a moral code. We just have to say, well, who gets to decide what of this? In fact, this is a really broken part of our world right now as people with their bullhorns trying to tell you that their rules are the right rules, right? And so we understand that there is just a moral code that, that happens there. And then we had to go, was there a consequence for the behaviors within the moral code? we got to figure that one out too. So, yep, there is moral law. We understand that. We want people to be held accountable for certain things. And that leads to the third one. Why can't God just wipe out all the debts? I want you to really think about that, if you think about that. Right? How— you don't want that. I don't want that, right? I mean, and we even understand it intrinsically. Like every time something bad happens, every time there's some kind of division between two people, some kind of sin, some kind of affliction that happens, like every single time throughout the history of all the stories, right? There's always someone who pays. There's always a payment, right? We talk about if, you, if I wreck, if you let me drive your car and I wreck it, when I'm outside, one or two things don't happen. I don't have to pay it. Are you going, no, no, I can't make the pastor do it. That's the right decision. Good job, guys, right? (laughs) Can't make the pastor do it. So who's paying for it then? You are, right? One of us is paying all the time. If someone harms you, you can go, I forgive you, and they don't have to pay it. But you're still dealing with the pain and the anxiety and the severance of the relationship as a result of it. There's always a payment. There's always a payment. not sure what we got there. Is that one more time and then i'll switch it um so there's always a payment always a payment right and then to say well god can't we just wipe off this forgive everybody for everything and think about that even uh, in terms of our world a heinous murderer comes in and the judge goes ah it's okay we're loving right you know who pays then society pays because that stuff happens more there's this, no matter what it is, you wouldn't respect a judge who goes, eh, not a big deal, <laughs> high five, that was a good one, right? Oh, come here, let me give you a big hug and tickle you. It's okay, you can kill people, right? now, right? There's always a payment, there's always a payment, and we expect there to be a payment. And so God is going, there is a, there is a cost on your head, it's the firstborn, and there is one of two options. Either you pay it, or innocent blood is shed. So, innocent blood was shed, Israelites celebrated, and for 1,300 years they celebrated this story. So every year they would have this story, and there would be this meal, and they'd come together and they'd eat. And in that story, really really neat, they'd have this thing where they would uh, do this liturgical stuff. We sang the doxology today, and some of you are loving it, right? Just remembering those things, just some of the liturgy that comes with worship. And uh, Israelites, uh, Jews, still to this day, even uh, they have this liturgy they do, this worship service where they drink some wine and make some decorations. They actually have four glasses of. wine at the, the Passover. Uh, hopefully they don't drink all four cups, but uh, four glasses of wine at the Passover. And in those things, they would make those statements of God's declaration that, like we just read in Exodus 6, of the six, four things that God would do. So they'd have a glass of wine, or a cu- couple glasses of wine, and then they'd start the meal. And then they'd have like their, their port, or their dinner wine for another one. And so this is uh, what would happen for 1300 years. Now what's interesting here uh, is that, Jim, I'm about to go to Eighteen, eighteen. So it's or two, two. I'm sorry. So what's interesting here? Check one. There we go. Sorry about that. There we go. So what's what's interesting in the, in this process is for 1,300 years this Passover meal would was eaten. So from the time that this happened um, in Egypt where they were freed to 1,300 years later, we find Jesus in this place on the Passover week, and Jesus lived perfectly, made all sorts of declarations. We believe he could have just offered his last discourse in this, just uh, washed all of his disciples' feet, all sorts of different things. And then they decided to have this liturgy, and Jesus finds himself having the Passover. And I would argue we just read about the first Passover, and this is the last Passover. And so I just want to read to you what happens here, Luke 22, verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed, Okay, that's it. Remember, every year they respond that Jesus redeems, God redeems, God provides, God provides, right? Um, Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Hey, we got this this meal where we're going to celebrate God's goodness every single year that God provides, God redeems, God restores, and he does it through the the shedding of innocent life, the the lamb. And so Jesus says, hey, go prepare for the Passover. So they go. Where do you want us to prepare for it, they asked. He replied, as you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to to the house that, that he enters, and say to the owner of the house, The teacher asks, Where's the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them, so they prepare the Passover. What a shocker! what Jesus said came true, right? So you see in this story, again, God's providence. He is bending and shaping and working out all the details. So they go to get ready for this meal that they're going to celebrate this day that God redeemed them by m- murdering, killing the firstborn of all, all, all the Egyptians. Such a complicated meal. So one side's parting and the other side's in pain. You can you just imagine just the complications of all this? Even to this day, ah, God loves us more. He killed your kids, right? Just the complication of all that. So here's another meal where this is about to happen. So it says, when the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. That means this is the long meal. That's what we're seeing there. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. So he literally goes, I've been looking forward to this. He pauses and says, I have eagerly. Um, that's our, our, our English language doesn't do this very well. Uh, so that word eagerly desired is actually desired Desire like there is a, even like a desire on the desire when in the Greek language, would you really want to like emphasize something? You just double up the word glory to glory, right? Grace to grace, desire to desire. So he's going, I deeply desired this moment, I could not wait to eat. And you're going, What is it about this meal that you're so interested in? Do you really like lamb? You know, like what is it? So he goes, Hey guys, I have really been looking forward to this, I would argue, from the beginning of creation this has been the moment I've looked for. So he's, he's setting the table and he's going, this is huge. You may not see yet, but this is huge, right? And so he says, I've been uh, eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, meaning it's bad, before I suffer. Um, for I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. So he's going, there will one day it'll be restored, but this isn't the time. What you're about to see is about to see some real redemption. So I've eagerly desired it, desired it and I will eat with you one day. We see it in Revelation. But this isn't that day. After taking the cup, He gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. So he's going, what is about to happen here is about the set, the, course of history, and change the course of history, and it's going to set all the dominoes in motion, and something's about to change here, and it's going to be a little while before it all gets redeemed, and all gets restored, but it starts right here, and then he takes the wine, he says, take, divide it. That would have been the beginning of the Passover. That would have been, the, this would have been the, the glass of wine they had to drink, and said the God, God will deliver us, right? So this idea, and so now all of a sudden, they have now started the Passover meal. See, there's actually two different times he drinks wine in here. Interesting, right? So he drinks it, starts the meal, and so he's having this Passover meal, and they'll Watch this, verse 19. And he took bread. He gave thanks and he broke it. And he gave it to them. Okay? They would have known this because every year in their liturgy, they would have drank the wine, drank the wine, they would have had the bread, they would have broke it, and they would have said, this represents my ancestors and their affliction in Egypt. That this is, they were talking about their affliction and their pain. Their affliction and their pain. And Jesus, as he's saying that, he says, and gave it to them, watch what he says. This is my body, given for you. Do it in remembrance of me. This is completely different. This is the first time. It's completely different. The first time in 1300 years, they don't talk about Jesus. Uh, the Israelites' affliction. Instead, he goes, it's actually gonna be my affliction. Hey guys, take this. This changes everything. This is no longer about you wandering in the wilderness. This is no longer about you being away from God. This is no wonder, longer wondering whether God's going to provide you. This is me actually taking on the pain of all people. So this is now my affliction, my body. They would have been, okay, this is weird. What's he talking about here? And then he did this. In the same way, after the supper, so he did that. They're having their meal apparently of bread. That's not a very good meal, by the way. Hey, have some carbs. That's it. Okay, no. Good job, guys. They're eating their bread, and all of a sudden, at the end of the meal, after they've eaten their bread, he takes the, second, the third cup of wine. Is what we'd guess this is. This is the cup of. You guessed it, redemption, meaning, hey, this is, this is the buyback cup. This is how we're going to buy back. And he says this. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. They go, oh, wait, wait, I don't remember the word covenant. God uses Abraham to say he's going re- to take all this to the promised land. God is going to do what he says he's going to do. Wait, this is a new covenant. Wait, wait, there's another promise. land. we keep hearing about this eternal state that Jesus says that I'm going to prepare a place for you that where I am, you may be also. Wait, wait, so there's this new covenant talking about no longer a temporary visa, but a permanent visa. Wait, wait. And God, Jesus is going, he's the new covenant of what? In my blood, which is poured out for you. Wait, 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 wait. No, no, we're talking about the lamb. You're not making this about you. Wait, wait, your body broken your blood? And so they would have started to pay attention to this. But the interesting is, they wouldn't have just paid attention to the fact that he was now saying, it's my body that's going to be afflicted. They're also paying attention to the fact that he's going, this is my blood that's going to be poured out. But they're going, he's saying some weird things maybe jesus is crazy because he also forgot the lamb they're just eating bread and you go jesus you cannot have a passover meal without the lamb on the table right like you you need it they would have known this they would have been whispering they would have been wondering what in the world is going on here here's what tim keller says the reason the lamb was not on the table was because it was sitting at the table so in this moment, Jesus, in this neat little, like, I see dead people, six cents kind of thing, like he is bringing the whole story of 1,300 years of all these times they've been saying these things. And he's going, you see, you're confused by the lamb. You're confused by the punishment. You're confused by the death. And rightfully so, all the band-aids that gave us the temporary visa weren't actually the real solution for the real problem. You see, the real solution for the real problem is Jesus going, I am going to be the innocent bloodshed. And in this moment, God reveals his brilliance. Because what he is doing is he is reconciling all the pain and sorrow, going, wait, wait, couldn't God just be so loving that he could just not punish anyone? No, he can't, because punishment has to happen. There's a debt to pay. But God is so loving, so how does he punish people? Hey, God's Abraham saying, Isaac, I know you, you, I owe you my firstborn, but I also know that you love me. And so here's what Paul tells us. And it's so neat when he talks about, you've got to understand what Jesus is saying here. This is Romans chapter 3. You've got to understand what Jesus is saying. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement, shed blood, covering. God presented it as atonement. Through the shedding of his blood. This is my cup, right? To be received by what? Fake. So he's going, the whole way of all this happens, all of a sudden the veil gets pulled over your back off your face, and you go, Jesus is the Lamb. I get it. I, he died. He figured it all out. So by faith, he did this to demonstrate his righteousness. He's got to be perfect, remember? Because of, in his forbearance, he had not le- he had left the sins committed beforehand and Because God was so loving, he didn't punish everybody for what they had to do. But he had to, because there's a price to be paid. There is a fall, and there is a huge wage. He did this. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time. So God is revealing to this Passover that he is perfect, and this is what he does. Watch this. So as to be just, he's got to be just. He's a perfect God. There are wages and prices to pay to be just and the one who justifies. See this? In this fell swoop, when Jesus becomes the lamb, he is just. He is m- requiring death. Remember what God required? This is really interesting. The firstborn. You know what Jesus is called? Firstborn of all creation. So God takes the firstborn child Of his own. And he murders him. And there is weeping and wailing. And God, Jesus is crying out, why have you forsaken me? And in that moment, God is pouring out the wrath that we deserve. And instead he's substituting his son. So God is fighting for us in that war where he gives his son as the ultimate death and the covering. And then, not only is he fighting for us, he's inviting us in faith to trust that this is true and it is real. And if it is, it changes everything. It changes how we see the Passover. It changes how we see things. So the Passover is at the crux of the Jewish faith. The God delivered us for a temporary visa. And the story of Jesus is he came and he became the true and better lamb. And he, he gives us a permanent visa. John the Baptist and the bands will come up and we're going to sing the song, made a declaration the first time people came into contact in, with Jesus. If so Jesus is walking in and John the Baptist's cousin sees him, and you know what he says? He says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so that's what Jesus offers us. He offers us to go, yep, you can, you can put the, the blood of Jesus, that cross, by the way, top and the sides, over your own heart, over your own heart, and God will cover you. And so would you pray with me? And we're going to sing a song about a God who fights for us. So Jesus, you are a true and better Moses and you're a true and better lamb. And God is so nuanced. And I, Lord, my prayer for the skeptic is they would just see the the intricacies of this whole story of all time. God, for our Jewish friends who are trying to figure out this whole story of going, God, where are you doing? I see the temporary visa. I see this deliverance. But where's the ultimate deliverance coming? God, would they be able to see you, Jesus, as, as the perfect Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? And so God, in these moments as we sing, will we be so confident that there is no place you wouldn't go to fight for us and draw us back to you? And would we receive that in faith today? now? Let me pray these things in your name. Would you stand with me as we close the song?
1: flesh and bone, you are not weak or slow, you're everything brave and bold, and you're fighting for us, you are not distant or cold, your heart's not angry or close. we don't know. Fiercely
0: So Jesus uses his little buddy, John, uh, to write a passage that tells us this. It says, if we confess our sins to God, he says this, he is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He literally says, if we talk to God and go, yep, but God, I'm, I'm, I, I des- there's a payment I deserve to pay. I get that. And you're just and I should pay the payment. But uh, he is faithful, meaning he's unjust. So what he's saying there is, but here's the reality. I already paid the payment. So if he's faithful and just, he goes, oh God, we've got to forgive him because I paid the price on the cross. Oh God, we have to forgive him because the penalty has already been paid. You can't pay. You don't have to pay. No one can pay. Jesus is going, I've already paid. And so the reality for us walking in this, would you quit beating yourself up over whatever you got going in your life, wherever you've messed it up? Because the reality is, Jesus literally was already beaten up for that. He was already just. God already poured out his wrath on that. And he was justifier. He already... Paid the price for it. So would you walk in faith knowing that God sees you as perfect and righteous? Not because of what you've done, but because of what he's done for you. And the story of the Lamb is he delivers us. He does all the work. He does all the work and we get all the credit. Would you walk in that? And if you don't believe that, would you just look into that just and justifier thing? There is no other religion. There is no other Savior that is both just and the one who suffers and pays the price for it. So just challenge you to, pursue that. That's it. You guys have a wonderful week. We certainly hope you come back on Wednesday for Cal. Maybe you can learn about prayer. And then next Friday, or this Friday, we have a movie. So see you a couple times this week.